I'm Dr. Max Pemberton. I'm a doctor working full-time in the NHS and a columnist for the Daily Mail. Welcome to this special two-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Robin Windsor about his experiences with anxiety and depression, the steps he took to bounce back, and how he now helps others who are struggling. So Robin, thanks so much for agreeing to, to talk to us. Because um, I, I suppose a lot of people will want to know about your time on Strictly, for example, your career. But actually, one of the main reasons you've, you've agreed to come and, and talk to us today is actually to talk about mental health, which might surprise some people. Because uh, I suppose that they might not necessarily know that, you, that this is something that, that's been there for you. So, so, so can you give us a bit of background about this? Well, I mean, I'd suffered quite a lot during my time on Strictly, actually going back when I was about 19, 20, I had quite a few bouts of depression, but didn't really know what it was. And during my time on Strictly, four things happened to me quite bad in my life. I had a bit of a financial situation with HMRC and I got a bill for £110,000. It took everything that I'd ever saved. So that was number one. It was my fault. It was something that I hadn't done and they went gone and backdated stuff and I didn't have the paperwork for it. So they could only assume that the same thing had been happening. So I got this bill that just took everything I'd ever, I had it, thankfully I had the money, but it was everything I ever had. Um, then uh, my relationship, my engagement ended uh, and I then started having trouble with my back. Um, so I had to go in and have surgery. And then I lost my job on Strictly. So all four things of those in a short period of time caused me to go from probably at the highest point of my life to the lowest point quite quickly. What is interesting about that is what you're describing is actually from like a medical point of view. It's kind of all the kind of major, major kind of life events, actually. And, the, and, and you know, standing back, even though, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. So standing back clinically, it's really interesting how you say that because literally it's kind of, you know, breakdown of a, of a major relationship. So they say like divorce, essentially divorce is, you know, one of the, if not the biggest disrupting events in someone's life. You know, you kind of have financial insecurity and, and you know, kind of facing that. Then you had physical um, problems and then you lost your job. So it's kind of literally like ill health, you know, financial problems, breakdown of a relationship, um, unemployment. They are all the, they're the top four causes actually of kind of, you know, the social aspects of depression. So it's kind of, I suppose, in a way, not to, to diminish from it, but it's not surprising that you struggled. So oh, well, when I lost the money, that was the first thing, really. And I was, of course, I was very, very upset about it. But I was like, you know what? It's only money and I can earn it back and I'm strong and I'll get through this. But then when it was like the world just kept throwing things at me and eventually I just couldn't take it anymore. And I got myself into a, this. I mean, we all have dark days. We all have our bad days. Everybody does. Um, my bad days turned to dark days. Then they turned to weeks. And then it just went black. And I wasn't getting out of bed. And because of the nature of my job, there are times when we have a week off here or there. Um, and I wouldn't get out of bed. And I didn't really know why. And I didn't really like who I was seeing in the mirror. And I just tried to keep going with life. But it's funny, I always had a smile on my face. So people wouldn't know. I think as a masculine thing, you kind of, even though being a gay guy, uh, but that masculine side of you, you don't want to be seen as being vulnerable. And I didn't tell people that things were going wrong. And it got to a point that um, I just didn't know what to do anymore. And to, to cut a sort of long story short, I'd been on tour after my back operation, I'd got better, but I was still in a terrible mess. And I was on tour and um, I had a few days off and I just didn't know how to cope anymore because I hadn't spoken to anybody 
um, and I checked into a hotel and I'd written letters to family and friends and I was, that was it for me. I was ready to go. Goodness. And I could have knocked out a herd of elephants with what I had in that hotel room at the time. And my phone lit up and it was somebody who I didn't like at the time. But as soon as I saw their name on my phone, I just completely broke down and realized that I was doing the most stupid thing that I could ever have done. But I didn't know where to turn. And it was only after that that I decided to seek some help. So, so Robin, up until that point, because it sounds like, you know, you were contending with all this all like horrible feelings. I suppose it's difficult being a performer. Maybe you're able to kind of perform in a particular way so that actually people didn't, didn't notice. But did nobody pick up on it? Were people saying anything to you? Or, or was it just that you were putting this you know, front of everything being fine and normal? Well, I'd, I'd been in another relationship, a short-lived one, um, and that had fallen apart as well. So I was just sad from that. And I don't deal with rejection very well. And that sort of was my excuse as to why I was being a bit down when I was not on stage, because it's amazing the power of dance. Uh, the moment that that curtain went up, doesn't matter what was going on in my life at the time, nothing else mattered but that performance that I was about to do. And you'd forget everything. And then that curtain comes down and everything comes back. But dancing is what got me through most of it. Um, and then thankfully, I got some very good friends who once I'd spoken to and said, look, this is what is happening. They literally picked me up and carried me for a while. And they're the ones that are still there. I cherish and honor everything about them. But I lost a few on the way because at first, I don't think they knew how to deal with me. And some of them just didn't really want to have to deal with that. So I lost a few friends. So the ones that I've got, I cherish. It's quite hard, isn't it? I suppose being, having to sit with somebody who is having such an awful time and who feels dreadful and to be able to just sit with that, that feeling that somebody else has, knowing that it's actually relatively little that you can do in that moment. You know, it's not like, you know, if somebody is, I don't know, in sort of physical pain, you can give them a painkiller, you can kind of, you know, take them to hospital, you can do all sorts of stuff to try and get them better. They can have an operation and so on. Whereas actually when people are in emotional pain, it's really hard. It just often has, it often comes, people need time and they need someone in the room with them, just sort of being with them. But that's actually can be really hard, I think, for other people to have to deal with. And I suppose it's one of those things where lots of people describe losing friends or kind of people that are near to them during these times because people just can't tolerate the distress, the emotional distress of someone else. And, it, and then, you know, certainly from my work, I've often been sort of interested that people will find other people that maybe weren't so close to them that actually rise up to that occasion. And, you know, and then actually you realise that these people are, who maybe were on the periphery of your life actually can then take a much more centre stage. Uh, exactly. And I've, I've now got the, probably some couple of the closest friends that I've got to me weren't really close friends of mine before, but they've done everything. And it's because they've been through similar stuff. Yeah. They were the ones that they could resonate with what's happened with me. Uh, and they knew how to support me. They knew when they, when I needed them, when to leave me alone, because sometimes you still need that alone. They don't want somebody on top of you all the time because some of my friends were like, had to be there and that was actually worse because you just needed that space and that headspace for yourself and I never ever wanted to talk about this publicly but I was doing a lot of work with a charity called Sane I'd retweeted something of theirs and then they contacted me to ask if I was okay and why or why I retweeted it so I, I spoke to them and uh, I continued dancing for a few years and I retired from dancing uh, a year and a half ago and I did a farewell tour across the UK 
and it was my life story and I was like okay I'm going to cut that bit out but they said to me I think Robin that you should perhaps at least touch on it because not only will it be good for you to talk about this every night on stage to an audience of people but you will help so many people by doing so so it took me a while to sort of get it right but I literally sat on stage every night and poured my heart out and I did a dance that matched what I just said afterwards and I could almost uh, hear a pin drop at the end of it it was it was very very emotional every single night but I would go to stage door every night and there would be people there in tears mum saying that my son's going through this or my daughter or I've been through this and thank you so much for doing that because um, it just makes us realize that it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you do, being on TV, working in a coffee shop, anything you are, depression does not discriminate. And so, so tell me, go back to when you were in that hotel room, without sort of dwelling on the details, I'm interested of like how you, what you actually did to get out of that situation. Because you were saying that there was a, a, the, the phone call and that sort of made you sort of think again. But actually, what, what did you then do? What were your next steps? Did you go to the doctor? Did you, was it just from family and friends that you got support? What, how, it, how well, the phone call was from my ex. It was, my phone was on silent and it lit up and it was somebody that I loved so much, but I actually hated them at that particular time and I had no idea why they had called. That in turn, I broke, just completely broke down. I probably sobbed for hours because I just didn't know what to do. Finally, I must have cried myself to sleep. And then the next day I spoke to my friend. He was like, right, I've got a friend that works, uh, not a psychiatrist. Uh, a psychologist? A psychologist, yeah. Psychologist, uh, he yeah. put me in touch with him, who put me in touch with somebody on Harley Street and said, right, we're going to put you in contact with this lady. So I started to have therapy almost straight away. Um, they what, were... what was that like? Because I think lots of people are quite scared about having therapy and there's a lot of kind of misunderstandings. They think you're going to sort of sit on a couch and sort of talk about your mother or, you know, being in the womb or something. So what was, what, I'm interested. I mean, I've, I've had therapy myself and I've also trained in, in psychotherapy and different types of psychotherapy as part of my sort of training in mental health. Um, but I'm interested from a lay person's perspective, what that was like kind of the first time sort of turning up and did it meet your expectations? Was it scary? What was it like? First time I went, I stood outside for about half an hour. I must have smoked about 10 cigarettes. <laughs> I, I was so, nerv so nervous about doing it. I had butterflies in my stomach. For me, it was almost the same as going into the very first gay bar that I went into when I was younger. I must have walked past it about 10 times before I actually went in. But <laughs> what was it that you were nervous about? Of like having to confront these things, about change, about kind of the, un the unknowingness of it? What was it that was, what made you so nervous? I, the, un the unknowing and actually just having to talk about it to like a professional. And I used to say to myself, I think to myself, I'm not crazy. And I kept thinking that you go and see a psychiatrist because you are crazy. But I'm like, I'm not crazy. Um, so I, all of these emotions going through my body. Um, and I remember going in to see this lady and I sat down and basically she just asked me to start talking from when I was young, tell me everything. And I didn't even get that far in and I started to cry and I must have cried for about 30 minutes out of an hour. And she's like, it's okay. We're going to start with this and letting it out. Um, and I found that she was really good. And every time it would just be going through my childhood because there were things in there that I didn't even know that were actually really taking, adding to what had happened to me in the recent times. Um, and I did a while with her. And then I just felt that it, I'd let everything out. 
but I didn't feel that she necessarily understood me being a gay man in London, in part of that gay scene. Um, and I, I felt I needed a, somebody that had been through the same things that I'd been through. So I then started to source uh, a, a different therapist, but um, um, a, a gay guy that had been through similar things because I felt, and she was very good at her job, but I felt all of a sudden, once we got to a certain point, she was reading from textbook rather than yeah. experience. And I felt as much as she was right, I felt that I needed to speak to somebody who'd been through the same thing. I mean, that, that's interesting, I suppose, because that's one of the differences between going privately and going on the NHS, because actually in the NHS, it's just like, you know, this is your, you know, the psychologist you're given, this is the therapist you're given, like you have to basically accept it. And, and part of me, Understand, well, I understand it from a resource point of view, from the NHS point of view, but also I think it's, uh, it can be really helpful for people to actually be, to be confronted with someone that, that isn't exactly the same as them and, and um, is, is sort of maybe giving a different perspective and so on and so on. But also there does come a point, I think, where people have very, very specific needs or very specific kind of life experiences that actually need somebody to have at least touched upon that and, and at least have some kind of point of reference and I think particularly sexuality is one of those things I think it's very difficult talking to a straight man or a straight woman for example about kind of challenges with your sexuality just as it would be if, if I was a black person going to see a white therapist talking about race racial abuse for example yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, there is a level of understanding that people can bring and empathy but it's it's quite different to kind of having literally that lived experience. Um, and I found lots and lots of my patients have, have initially gone to, to therapists, done a lot of really good work with them, but then when it comes down to the kind of finer issues, they've then often gone off and found somebody who either specializes that or has some really acute experience within that particular area. So it sounds like that's kind of what you did. Yeah, and it, it, worked, it worked perfectly. I felt that it was almost an empathy with them because towards me because he had experienced pretty much the same stuff. Um, and I stayed for a little while. Um, and then it's difficult with my profession is that I'm always on the road. So it's difficult to keep something regular. So I bought a book or I was told to buy a book and I bought The Velvet Rage. I know, yeah, yeah. Changed everything. So just, just, I, for, just for listeners, can you just explain just in a sentence or two about The Velvet Rage and what that is? Velvet Rage, it, it, it's a book about growing up as a gay man in a straight society and understanding the hatred that you have of yourself as a gay man. And everybody, I, I can probably speak for a majority of people that are gay. And I mean, I'm 40. So between 35 plus, 35 to 55, we all have, there was a hatred about who we were in our bodies growing up because we came from a time where it was still unacceptable to be gay. And obviously times are changing and not everybody's fine. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy for anybody nowadays, but it's easier than it was. And that book was fantastic. The first two thirds, I felt like it was written for me. I'm re I was reading my own story. Then uh, it's an American book. So I felt that the, the last third was a bit Americanized for me and I didn't resonate with it so much, but every so often I picked that book up and it's great. And I've, I've recommended that to so many people. And uh, it's, it's been a really important book. I think lots of people who work with mental health have read it because it's a way of understanding how within the gay pop, within the gay community, there's, there's a, 
a disproportionate number of people have mental health problems, have alcohol, substance misuse problems, and so on. And it's a way of understanding that, of that kind of internalized hatred within society. You kind of internalize that, and that then causes you, or it facilitates you behaving in particular ways. Um, and, and as a model for understanding the, those kind of relatively unique needs of that community, I think it's been really important. It's a really influential book. It's interesting that you found it. That's, that's, yeah. Well, I was told to read it, and I was also given very recently, and I haven't read it yet. Straight jacket. I knew yeah. you were going to get that book. Matthew Todd. I've read that book as well. He sent it to me. <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I've read, I've seen online people have said this book was life-changing for them yeah, brilliant so i literally have just ordered it off amazon because i wanted to have a good read again so just for the for the listeners so it's another book it's by um uh, a journalist called matthew todd who i think he used to be editor of attitude magazine like a yes, game magazine. Did, yes yeah um it's called straight jacket and again it's very similar to velvet rage um except it's kind of much more focused on the uk experience and, and picks up on things like section 28 for example um which prevented teachers from talking about homosexuality in schools which meant that it was you know if you're going up growing up gay it was very much a kind of thing that was never spoken about not acknowledged you it wasn't represented in any kind of discussions that were had in schools um and how that sort of has affected the mental health of a whole entire kind of generation really of, of um, lgbt people Yes, yeah. I mean, um, I was quite fortunate. Um, ballroom, uh, the world of ballroom dancing is not the most macho in the world. So there's a lot of gay people around. So I was quite well, comfortable around gay people. I knew I could see everything that was going on and it was made a little easier for me to come out. But it's still never the easiest thing to have to do. And that was where it first started for me. But because um, I, I was interested as well about the, the role of kind of ballroom dancing in, in that when you were growing up, because presumably it required like a lot of dedication and focus and you know i would imagine i mean i've never gone ballroom dancing <laughs> i would imagine from watching stuff on tv um you know hours and hours and hours and hours of rehearsing how was that helpful when you were young as a kind of distraction or focus or or did that actually mean that you weren't able to form kind of friendships with peers and so on like, how did that impact on you when you were sort of growing up a teenager a bit of both really. Um, I loved to move to music. I didn't really care what it was, even from a very young age, just loved to move to music. And my parents used to dance at the local dance school. So I was always there. And they, they asked one day if I wanted to caught me wiggling my hips about and they said, would you like to have a lesson? And I said, yes. And I, I found that dancing, going into that dance studio is my sanctuary. Um, I had friends at school. I was very lucky. Um, I went to a great school where everybody supported what I did, even going to school with a bright orange face after competitions from all that terrible fake tan that we slash on everywhere. Um, they were all really, really supportive, but there was something I'd never not could understand. I'll never really understand what I felt. I was quite lonely as a child, even though I was surrounded by lots of people. And I still find that today that I'm still quite a lonely person yet. I've got loads of friends and I'm out and I have a very great, but I, there's a sense of loneliness and that's always been there. And I think it will always be there. But when I put on a pair of dance shoes and I got into that studio, I didn't feel alone anymore. I, I, and I, know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to explain how or why, uh, but that, it's almost like saying dancing is my best friend. And that's the person that I could speak to with my body, if that makes sense. And so, so in a way, it was a kind of a source of comfort for you then, as a, when you were growing up. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it so much. And I also knew that I'm from Ipswich. And I also knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in Ipswich. And I knew that if I got to a particular standard of and put in the dedication and hard work, that I would be able to move to London. Uh, as an early teen, I started to realise my sexuality. I knew that I didn't really want to be in a, a sort of smaller town. I'd been to London to do all my dance competitions. And as soon as I saw, uh, saw it there, especially growing up at a slightly later stage at 15, uh, my dance partner lived in Southampton and I used to travel from Ipswich to Southampton, traveling through London uh, on my own every weekend to go down there to, to practice. And I was just fascinated and wanted to be on the tube and wanted to be in a hustle and bustle of a city. I just knew that that was what was for me, but I had to become the best of the best to be able to do that. That's interesting. So really, so dance was also a kind of ticket out of the, the kind of life that you found yourself in into a kind of more exciting life for you. So it was also, it provided like an escape in a way. Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew that that would have been my exit. And I, I used to pick up a, a copy. I mean, again, I must have walked in and out of WH Smith about 15 times every, every month that I'd passed. Um, and I used to pick up a copy of Gay Times. And I knew by reading that on the train secretly, I knew that London was where I wanted to be uh, when you read everything that was in there. And I just wanted to be there. And I felt that that was where my life was going to start. It's so funny because I, I think I'm a very similar age to you. And, um, and my experience is very, very similar. Kind of being in London, kind of buying gay magazines, sort of seeing things around and kind of realising there's this other life and being quite excited. And that's one of the reasons I think I became a doctor. Uh, was because I saw it as a way of thinking, do you know what, I can move to London, it's a good profession, it's got, you know, steady income and so on and so on. And actually for me, it's very much like if all my family then disown me, it's fine, I can still, I'll be able to support myself, so it's okay. And I remember really from about the age of kind of 13, sort of being in London, I mean, my family are from London, so it's, you know, kind of not as exciting in that sense, but kind of realising there's another world. And, and that really sort of being a real focus for me during my whole teens, my, my whole kind of time as a teenager and I even remember one of my teachers Mrs Jones after I, this is sort of twigged after um, a weekend it was in um, uh, I can't remember what this is called like HMV or something on a Piccadilly Circus and I remember getting a, a copy of Gay Times Then and really twigging in my mind right this is going to be uh, this is going to be my focus and her about a week after saying what's wrong with you you're 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 different and me saying in what way and she's saying like I've never seen you study so hard I was always really naughty at school and studying I was like I need to stop mucking around I need to get good marks <laughs> I need to get out of here and get into London <laughs> it's funny how those are kind of you know for, for medicine for me it sort of seems very similar you know what you're what you're describing with dance is that it was a ticket out it was a way of kind of escaping um and sort of you know getting your independence it, so it wasn't just simply that it was dancing and that you loved it, it was also, it represented much more for you. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 found, I found that I would just look through that, look through that magazine and go through all of the gay bars and pick the one that I felt that I was going to be able to go to and make, make friends because I, I, as I said, I felt very lonely. I didn't necessarily have friends from school because I was always, always dancing. I had friends at school, but I never really had any out, out of school um, experiences with them. Um, and then in the dance world, I was very shy and very, very quiet until later in life. But when I was younger, I was so shy that I didn't really have any friends in the dance world either, apart from my dance partner. So uh, I knew that I wanted to make a new life 
and make some 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 get young gay friends in in London. And then that must be must be well very very profoundly shocking then to then have to leave because you know the idea of me having to not be a doctor anymore I'd be really sort of horrified but not only because I like it now but also because I'm aware that it's historically it's been such an important part of my life and for you then I suppose the difference between medicine and, and dancing is that actually dancing comes to an end so you're exactly. saying you know you had to retire and actually you've retired at a young age really you know relatively speaking in the, as far as a career is concerned and that must be really sort of profoundly touch you because you're giving up this thing or you're not able to do this thing that's been so important and represents so much in your life well d dancing will always be part of my life I, I just all I did was retire from performing so of course I still teach I knew I wanted a new start in my life um so once I'd retired from performing I moved to St Lucia um and I took a job at a place called the Body Holiday um it's like a fitness wellness resort and I'd been out there a few times as a guest presenter for them. They have a thing called Jive June. So I'd been there doing dance classes. They'd realized that dance is part of people's wellness. And after being there four times, I, I said, look, I said, I'd love to come out here and work. And I said, would you? We'd love to have you here. So um, I packed everything up and I was supposed to go out for two years. I went out. It was fantastic to start with. Um, I was loving it. I mean, living in paradise is pretty fabulous to begin with um then i realized how isolating it is especially live for coming straight from london to a tiny little island and i never really left the resort and the resort was nowhere near anything else so i found myself getting very isolated and i felt i'm going to need to get out of here because i'm going to start going backwards so after six months i made the decision to come to come back which they were happy with. Um, they completely understood and I'll be back. Well, I was supposed to be there now actually for Jive June, but uh, I'll be back there. Tell me, talk to me about that because that's interesting because that's quite a brave decision. I think people often find themselves in these situations and they then feel quite stuck and quite paralyzed because they have either a sense of duty or they feel like, you know, I can't give up on this or, you know, everybody else is expecting it to be marvelous. So I feel I've got to be having a marvelous time and I've got to just stick with it. And actually they get more and more and more miserable. How, what was it like? How did you go, actually, hang on, do you know what? This isn't what I wanted it to be. I'm going to, you know, escape. How, how did you do that? Well, it was, um, I'd made a lot of friends. Are the guests of uh, the guests there? Are the same guests? Uh, they come sometimes three, four, five times a year. Um, I got to meet a lot of friends that way. And Maggie, who's uh, editor of Female, I know uh, she was there, and I met her there. And I did a strictly dance competition, and she, uh, she, I was speaking to her afterwards, and she said, um, "You're not happy, are you?" I said, "Why do you say that?" She goes, "I, I just get a sense." She said, "I hope you don't mind me being forward, but I don't think you're happy." And I just said to her, like, do you know what? I'm not. And she was like, right, then it's time to get you back to England. And it's actually her who helped spur that all on for me. Oh, and I love Maggie. How amazing. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose we often feel we don't want to comment on how we think other people are, are and how they're managing and if they're coping or not. You know, we feel it's like it's rude, it's intrusive. But it's actually, if you can do it in the right way at the right moment, it can be incredibly helpful. And and, and almost give people permission to go, actually, do you know what? I'm not, I'm really struggling at the moment. And yeah. and and I think often, you know, with, with my patients in my own life, it's been those kind of touch points, those kind of small comments that people have made where they've almost kind of stepped out of what maybe what we would normally consider acceptable to kind of talk about and go, actually, do you know what? If you don't mind me saying, I'm a bit worried about you. 
that is often incredibly important. I'm very, very grateful. Um, just, uh, I think she actually, she asked me, she said, are you happy here? And um, she said, you're, she watched the competition that I'd hosted and done. She's like, you're so talented. I think you, I, I think you could use your talent. Your ta you've still got so much left in you. This is something that would be perhaps greater for you later. She said, I think there's more to you um, still. So um, that was sort of like the spurring moment that uh, I sort of, thought, do you know what, it's perhaps time to go. So I come back, um, it was absolutely fantastic. I came back at a, a very good time um, where uh, uh, same-sex dancing was being spoken about a lot. And of course, as that happened, so I think Strictly had said they would have a, a couple this year, everybody was coming to me to talk about it. So I was getting myself back out there again, letting people know that I was back and um, things have actually been going really, really well. And I can probably say I'm, I'm at my happiest at, at the moment, which is very strange being in isolation in this current sort of situation that we're all in. I'm probably at the happiest that I could say I've been in years. That's all we've got time for now. Come back for part two. You can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google and leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. 